Warning! The following presentation contains information that might contradict what you have previously heard, or believed to be true, about how the human body works, and contains material that is not suitable for closed-minded individuals. Enjoy! How many calories I intake has to be equal to the amount of calories that I use in a day. Yes. But that always leads to a rhetorical question that I, that I ask every physiology Ooh. student that I come across, anybody who, talk, who I talk to about this whole issue. How much does a calorie weigh? No idea. Well, that's, that's, that's a very good response because here's the thing. Calories don't weigh anything. Calories mm -hmm. have no weight to them. Yeah, that, calories... that's where my question with the fat came in, because I'm like, then how much does a calorie weigh if yeah. I'm consuming, you know, like a cookie that's this tiny, but it's like 500 calories? Where's all that coming from? Yep. And so and, and, and so so that's where it's just like, how much does a calorie weigh? And a calorie doesn't have weight to it. And so since a calorie doesn't have weight to it, to utilize that idea as a caloric balance is a it's, it's a misnomer it's 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 taking us in the wrong direction it's not really a logical fallacy it's just not pointing us in the right direction which takes us to a true false question that we always have to address here when we start looking at the balance issues and metabolism and that is where people automatically think that being thin means having a fast metabolism yes and that's false just because you're thin, just because you're fat, however you want to reference those, those terms, doesn't directly indicate whether you have a fast metabolism or a slow metabolism. That's because what we're talking about in terms of metabolism is simply all those chemical reactions that are taking place in the body. Right. We can increase our metabolism. We can speed up our metabolism by increasing the amount of physical activity we have in a day. Right. But that doesn't necessarily mean that I have a fast metabolism. It simply means that I have a faster metabolism than I had when I was at rest. Right. And so, and so when we, when we think about it, the next question that usually comes is, what do you mean there is no such thing as fast metabolism or slow metabolism? I look at these images and I look at these pictures where I have the overfat person and the fit person. And, right. And there has to be a difference. There has yeah. to be a difference. There has to be a difference. There has to be something to explain why someone doesn't have a lot of body fat and someone has a lot of body fat. Right. And it's not about metabolic rate, regardless of what people say. Once again, logical fallacy when we say people say. E yeah, exactly. And so, and so, so, so add populism. I was going to say add populism. For, for those of you who remember your, your logical fallacies. The ad populism statement of, well, people say that there is this thing. It's, it's, an, it's a non sequitur. It's, it's taking us off track track or people say, oh, well, my, my son eats these bags of potato chips and doesn't seem to gain a weight. Doesn't seem to gain any weight. Yeah. I've, I've heard that right? one a lot. Yeah. A lot. How much, how much mass is in a bag of bag of potato chips? Not much. There's it's mostly not. air. Yeah, a lot of what's a lot of what we see in a, in a in a bag of potato chips is air. Most of the potato chips that are sold in the stores are usually about eight hundred grams, mm -hmm. less than a kilogram, right? Of, of of mass. And so, if I am normally metabolically active, and a lot of people talk about this, are usually talking about teenagers, right? 
and teenagers tend to have a very high high metabolic rate because of all the growth that's taking place and all the physiological responses that's taking place due to due oh that's true due to people changing that mm-hmm. yeah they need all that because they're they're in the middle of growing that makes so much more sense exactly and so so one of the things that that you can you can always do for for people who are listening that have young young children or children are going to go go through growth spurts when i'm going through a growth spurt before i go through a growth spurt i'm gonna start to eat more yes i'm gonna start eating more is because i'm getting signals the head upstairs into the hypothalamus and into the areas that are going to regulate my hunger drive that say, you need to eat, you need to eat, you need to eat. And so one of the things that happens prior to most growth spurts is that I'm going to put on some adipose tissue. Right. Put on some adipose tissue so that I have additional fuel sources available to me so that when I'm growing, I can take the things that I need to grow. And we'll get to those lists here in a, in a, in a few minutes. I have those sources for growth available to me to grow and i'm not going to use them to meet my energy demands i have the other things that are available for me to meet my energy demands that doesn't mean that as i'm putting on adipose tissue my metabolism slowing down it simply means right. that i'm sending out hormonal signals that say hey we need to store stuff for for later use right and so one of the things we now have to remember is that okay calorie in calorie out it's a it's a fallacy it's a it's an illogical argument in terms of that. So what should we be looking at? Well, why should we not use the calorie in calorie out? There's a host of reasons. And the principal number one reason is that the BMR equations are not accurate. All oh. of the equations are not accurate. The most accurate ones out there are the ones that, that we just referenced in terms of the Benedict equation. Right. There are other, McArdle has another equation. So the Bennett equation, the McArdle equations, they're accurate to a certain extent. And they're Mm. accurate to the population that was used to determine the equation. Okay, that makes sense. for all of us who understand the history of medical research and the history of who gets put into these survey studies to determine all these regression equations, automatically know the issue here. And the issue is, is that who was used to make the models? College students back in the 50s and 60s. Oh. Some some into the 70s and 80s. Huh. Who were making up the college population in the 50s and 60s into the 70s and 80s? Young people? Young people were. Males. Oh, okay. European descent. Ah, so we have because one most, control or one study group, one population. One population. And when it happens is, is that because it was generalizable to European descent individuals, it then got generalized to population as a whole. But what's happened recently, and I'll put some of the references into the into the, the notes here in terms of where you can find the other equations. What's right. happened recently is that we found out that those equations do not hold true, even though we have a female equation for females across all populations. It doesn't hold true for the indigenous populations, regardless of which indigenous population we're talking about. Right. It doesn't hold true for anybody of African descent. 
That's a lot of people. Yeah. And so, so that's most of the world. So there's a lot, there's a lot of the world where we're not using an accurate estimate to determine what the, what is the metabolic rate that's taking place. So is that why I read? Because there, there, there are some good points to, to that book. There's a couple other books out there that, that raise some good points. There's a lot of books out there that, and once again, it goes into somebody says, somebody says, somebody says. And so, yeah. So there's some good points out there. There's some bad points out there. Uh, there's a lot of interesting points raised in that book as it relates to uh, indigenous diets. But as it relates specifically to, to metabolic rates, what we're looking at here is we're looking at the fact that the equations that we use are referred to as regression equations. So there, we take all of these factors come into play and we figure out, okay, how much correlation is, is this providing? How much correlation is this providing? How much correlation is this providing? We then toss it into a scatter plot and we look at, okay, what is the line, the linear line that gets developed based off of where all the points line up? Right. And that's how we develop that, the, the equations, whether it's the McCarlow equation or the, the Benedict equation or any of the other equations that relate to metabolic rate. Right. The other problem with that, with that calorie in, calorie out, fast metabolism, fast metabolism, slow metabolism, is that everything is an estimate. Right. Yeah. Even what we consume is an estimate. Unless you are sitting, unless you're going to sit there and actually weigh out what was actually in the food that you're consuming. Yeah. It's a rough it's guess. A, it's, it's a rough guess. It's a rough estimate. Unless you're going to do direct calorie measurements of heat being produced by your body during exercise or during physical activity, what you use in a day is a, is a very rough estimate. Right. Even if I ignore the equations for, for a second here. That's true. But the other problem with that calorie in, calorie out issue is that the principal assumption is that everything that I consume as a nutrient is automatically going to be used for energy purposes. Oh, that's true. Which means that I'm not having any nutrients available if I'm a teenager or mm -hmm. if I'm an infant or if I'm a toddler for growing or if, exactly. I'm, if, or if I'm older to keep my body from completely deteriorating into nothing. Right. And so one of the things that, that we have to have to take into account here is the fact that not it shouldn't it should never be about calorie in, calorie out. It should be more about what nutrients am I taking in and then what nutrients am I utilizing in order to be able to maintain all of the tissues of my body. Okay. And this is where we get into the there are slight metabolic differences that take place based off of how I eat. But there is a generality that we have as it relates to the nutrient consumption. Now, there are distinct dietary nutrient requirements that we need to meet. But before we get into the nutrient requirements, let's take a step back and talk about how the nutrients relate to the caloric balance issue. Right. When we talk about the nutrients as it relates to the caloric balance issue, this is where we get a set amount or excuse me, a set amount of energy for every nutrient that we consume. Carbohydrates okay. and proteins for energy purposes, give me about four dietary calories per gram that I consume. Okay. 
lipids, fats, give me about nine dietary hmm. calories for every gram that I consume. Okay. And so when we start looking at the calorie and calorie out balance, one of the things they're going to tell you is, okay, you need to have so much carbohydrate, you have so much protein, you have so much lipid in a day. Yeah. Without taking into account where are those nutrients going to be used? It's not about energy, right. it's about use. And so I, I can use things for purposes of energy. I right. can use carbohydrates to break, break apart the recombustion reactions to give me my ATP. I can mm -hmm. use amino acids to do some conversions of those amino acids to make them use, usable for energy purposes. I can take those lipids, do some chemical reactions to make them useful for energy purposes. But when we start talking about the calorie balance, that's what we're talking about in terms of nutrients and calorie balance. That and makes we sense. Can, we can use that to a certain extent. However, if we actually want to look at it in terms of what does the body need, we have to look at it in terms of what is my minimums. And mm -hmm. when we start looking about nutrient requirements, we always look at it in terms of the minimum requirement necessary. For proteins, I need to have about 0.8 to about 2.2 grams per kilogram of body mass of proteins in a day. Of that, I need to make sure I get about 14 milligrams per kilogram of two distinct amino acids, methionine and cysteine. Mm -hmm. And I need to make sure that I have a maximum of about five to 20 grams of the branched chain amino acids. Right. And within my protein, I need to make sure I get about three grams of creatine in a day. Huh. It's that same creatine that when we start talking about what you need for quote unquote building muscles in the right. gym, they'll say, oh, we need super amounts of creatine. People mm -hmm. who are active need a little bit more creatine, but no okay. more than about six grams per day. Oh, that's not so bad. Yeah. And so you're looking about, about twice as much as what you need on, on a normal basis for, for creatine. Yeah. Now, if you look at the creatine supplements mm -hmm. and the research is out there that talks about positive benefit from creatine supplement, the loading that they do is around five to six times that three gram per day. Hmm. And so they're super loading the body with creatine. Okay. The body doesn't like holding on to creatine. No. And so it's going to excrete a lot of that excess, that extra creatine that you're consuming if it's not being put into the tissues. And so the more muscle mass I have, the more bone mass I have, the more active tissue mass I have, the more creatine I need in a day. Okay. But I'm still going to have just a maximum that I, that I can have before the body starts to get rid of that extra creatine. Right. So is there kind of like a, a baseline? Because again, this goes back to something else that I read in the same book. He says... Like there was this idea that there's a base homeostasis, like I said, for kind of everybody, which which is what you got into as well. But he also said on certain days, if you happen to consume more sodium or something like that, you're just going to automatically excrete it at first. Or if you consume more, like you're saying, of that whoops protein, then obviously you're going to kind of just get rid of it. Is that accurate or... Is that going to have to do with that period of like eight weeks that you mentioned where you're going to have to kind of implement that and then it becomes homeostatic or what? 
Uh, it, it depends. It depends a little bit on, on what nutrient you're actually looking at for the sodium issue, for the salt issue. It has to do with, with how sensitive you are to salt and what your level of hydration and or salt balance happens to be at that point in time. Hmm. Okay. For, for creatine, it's a little bit different and it's different based off of how much metabolism is taking place in the bone is to be in the muscles. Okay. Because the principal site of creatine use is going to be muscles followed by nerves in the neurons. Oh, okay. And so because creatine is used in the ATP pathways mm -hmm. in getting the instant response that cells need to ATP use to energy use. Right. And so when I am highly metabolically active, I'm going to use a lot more creatine than when I'm less metabolically active. Right. And so that's where people who have more muscle mass, people who are more active are going to need more creatine than people who are less active, less muscle mass. Right. And so while you can't, while overconsuming stuff on one day may not have an impact, overconsuming on multiple days will have impacts. In right. a very similar situation to all oh, you need eight to 12 weeks in order to start seeing full body compositional changes from any type of physical activity that's being done. Right. And so just because you, and it goes back into just because you overconsume something on one day, doesn't mean that you are going to have issues. And just because you underconsume on one day, doesn't mean you're gonna have issues because what's going right. to happen is that, is that we're constantly fluctuating. And this is where within physiology, we talk about having everything in balance. And I don't like to, I like, don't like thinking about in terms of everything in balance, I like thinking about in terms of everything being baby bear. Right. Not too, not too much, not too little, everything just right. And so what's going to happen is the body's going to kind of start regulating itself based off of everything has to get back to being just right. Exactly. And, and so when, if I'm over consuming, some nutrients, I'm going to have a different type of metabolic responses because what happens is that if I overconsume one nutrient, I'm going to typically underconsume another, a different nutrient. Okay. Yeah. And so, so what ends up happening, and this is where we'll get into the, like with carbohydrates, I need to have 120 grams per day mm -hmm. of the sugar carbohydrates. Yes. Fructose, glucose. Yes. In order to have my neurons function normally. Right. If I do not consume that 120 grams, I have to somehow get the 120 grams from somewhere. And so what does it happen is the body will start to break apart other tissues. Oh. Convert those things into glucose metabolites, things that come from glucose or can make glucose. And then I'll make glucose so that I can get that 120 grams that's required of me. So that's what would happen on a carb-free diet is you'd have other things begin to break down. And obviously that's not very ideal. It doesn't sound great. And so, and so that's, that's quite bad. Yep. And so that's where people who follow the, the lower carbohydrate diet, they'll have drastic weight loss. But not in a good way. But not like, necessarily uh, in a good like way. Like the raw, they become malnourished. Mm -hmm. And so, and so, and that goes into the, to the nutrient balance. We'll talk a little bit about like, what do I actually need here in a second for the carbohydrates? For healthy people, and that's once again, 95% of the population, 2.5 to 3.5 grams per kilogram with a maximum of about five grams per kilogram. Oh, if okay. I'm If I'm highly active, five, 10 grams 
per kilogram of body mass with consumption post-workout of about 0.8 to one gram per kilogram per hour. So if I do one hour of exercise, I need to consume about one gram per kilogram of body mass that I have. Oh, wow. Okay. In order to, and that what that's going to do is that's going to allow me to make sure that my glycogen stores stay stable. Yeah. So that I can do more exercise later on. So for people who want to do the whole sugar-free thing, mm -hmm. like, you know, the, they don't want to consume sugar. Cause I know that's another one. Carbohydrates, they're a form of sugar, but I know just blatant sugar. Mm -hmm. A lot of people tried to cut that out completely, but how do you feel about the things like diet Coke, which are, but how do you feel about that, that replacement? So those, those fake sugar, so to speak, that are put into this stuff as like an imitation. Is that going to act the same or is it going to be bad or what? So most of the, the fake sugars mm -hmm. do not get metabolized the same way that, that real sugars. And once again, I don't like using the word fake and real because they're chemicals. And so they're, yes. they're naturally occurring chemicals that, that occur. And without bad mouthing any specific uh, drink or company, uh, what happens when I consume those products is it changes the metabolic responses to consuming food. Oh, because of, and once again, it's, it's not, it's not a bad change. It's just, it, it, cha oh. it changes the, it changes the way in which I metabolize following consumption of food. Okay. Because I'm sensing one thing coming in, in the mouth, but not sensing the same thing being absorbed after it passes through the intestines. Hmm. Okay. And so what it does is it changes the way in which the hormones situation is set up so that I'm going to have a different response taking place. What ends up happening as it relates to the carbohydrate issue mm -hmm. is that most things have carbohydrates in them, even though we don't reference them as having carbohydrates in them. Exactly. So you have a steak. Yeah. So steaks have carbohydrates in them, even though yeah, we don't think about having carbohydrates in terms of how we, oh. how we think about this, the, the steaks. There, is, there are, there are carbohydrates in there. Uh, of course. There's other chemicals that will be used within carbohydrates. Uh, so anytime we talk about carbohydrates, we're talking about sugars. And so sugar is carbohydrates. Carbohydrates are sugars. There is no way to have a sugar-free diet, meaning not having any sugars in your diet whatsoever. The right. people who are young need sugars. Right. Because that's what their metabolism is, is set for. Their metabolism is set to run on sugars. Because oh. they want to they want to they want to save everything else for building the stuff that they, that they need to build. Oh, okay. Their metabolic rates are also slightly higher. Then, oh yeah. Then when they, then when, they when they when they're older, we'll see yeah. Back to the to the regression equations where age is negative, and so as I get older, I have more negative on my on my caloric estimates. Yes. And so and so young children typically need to have more carbohydrates than older children than adults do. And that's simply because of how their metabolism is set up. 
because their metabolism is set up to run on sugars. Right. Now this becomes problematic with how sugars are usually consumed mm -hmm. as it relates to metabolism and metabolic processes. And that's because a lot of the sugars that we consume have a lot of fructose in them. And yes. Fructose is not, is not good or bad. But if fructose is not being used by the tissues, mm -hmm. it triggers within adipose cells to store the sugars that are in circulation as lipids. Oh, so, so fat. Over, yeah, so as fats. And so this is where the correlation comes into play, where if I overconsume sugars, I start having issues with fatness. Right. And, and that's where that correlation com comes into play. It's not, a, it's, there, there is some causal relationship in, in, in terms of fructose causing lipids to be formed, fats to be formed, but it mm -hmm. doesn't necessarily mean that if I consume sugars, I'm going to have fat mass. Right. So you can have smaller amounts or the appropriate exactly. amount and you can burn it out. Exactly. When you're exactly. not burned, but you know, you yeah. know, use it, exude use it, it when you're exercising and exactly. then it's a useful thing. Mm -hmm. But if you're not moving around a lot, then you kind of got to go into a deficit. Exactly. Exactly. And so, and so that goes into to the last part of the nutrient requirements and that's with the lipids. And so the lipids, we need to have one gram of lipids per kilogram of body mass. And that's for all lipids. Of that, we need to have about 20 grams of our essential fatty acids. The essential fatty acids are the omega-3s and the omega-6s. Right. Those are the quote-unquote heart-healthy labels. I've heard those referred lipids. to as the good fats. Yeah. The, yeah, the good fats. The other fats that we have to make sure that we consume, even though they tend to have a bad reputation to them, are the saturated fats. Yeah, we those do. That we need to make sure that we consume both saturated as well as the unsaturated, both the polyunsaturated as well as the monounsaturated fats. And that's because with, within our energy pathways, we use those saturated fats for energy purposes, but we also use those saturated fats to produce some of the membranes within our body. Oh. And so, and so cells are cells because they have membranes, they have the chemical barriers right. surrounding them. And so in order to make those chemical barriers, we need to have saturated fats, unsaturated fats, as well as cholesterol. And so one, oh, yeah. of, the things, one of the things that comes into play when we start looking at the, the, the lipids, the fats, is this idea of cholesterol and cholesterol issues coming from diet. And yes. there's very little evidence that says that cholesterol issues come about from diet intake of cholesterol. Really? Yeah. Most of the circulating levels of cholesterol are coming about from metabolism taking place within the liver. Oh. Clearing out cholesterol molecules that our own cells are releasing, as well okay. as cholesterol molecules that may come from stuff that we eat. Now, oh. There is a relationship between saturated fats, unsaturated fats, cholesterol, and uh, atherosclerosis, hardening of mm -hmm. the arteries or cardiovascular disease. And that's not really about lipid in the diet. That's more about immune response to sensing a foreign cell membrane in circulation. And so when we break apart the stuff that we're consuming, the cell mm -hmm. membranes of all the stuff we consume gets broken up into small little, small little pieces. 
right the lipids and in those lipids there's little cholesterol molecules yes act as an antigen as a thing mm -hmm. that, that says hey i belong to right that can cause the immune cells to become active oh and so all of the white plaque in the arteries the atherosclerosis yeah. comes about from the immune cells reacting to the circulating levels of uh of lipids ldl vldl in circulation that have these little markers that come from the cells that we consumed and we we see that more from people who eat a large amount of animal fat versus oh. those who eat a lar large amount of plant fat yes plants do have fat it's <laughs> it, it, it's it's most people think, oh, I eat, I eat a plant diet, then I don't have a lot of fat. But no, there's a lot of fat that comes from plants. If if you think about it, all of the oils that we consume mm -hmm. are all oh, plant-based yeah. oils. Yeah. There's less saturated fat coming from plants hmm. than coming from animal sources. But the circulating levels of, of the animal fat markers is what's going to trigger the immune response, which is going to trigger the atherosclerosis. And that's where we have to, even though we want to have the one gram per kilogram of body mass, we want to make sure that we're getting the, the saturated, unsaturated, and essential fatty acids in the correct ratio so that we're not going to have all of these triggers for uh, cardiovascular disease, but we'll still be able to have the correct responses that take place. Right. So that we don't have the immune responses occurring, but we have the correct metabolism that takes place. Now these ratios can be changed and the change in the ratios is how we get those various different types of metabolic diets, the ketogenic that everybody likes to reference nowadays, Yeah. the, the lower carbohydrate. And so what's happening is that I cut out carbohydrates and I increase lipids or increase protein to compensate for the gram per kilogram change that was, that was made. Mm -hmm. where the change in between protein and carbohydrates is a one-to-one -one ratio, usually, whereas the lipid to carbohydrates is usually a one-to-two ratio, one lipid for every two carbohydrates in terms right. of the that, are, that are being changed, in terms of how much difference I have within the diet that, that occurs there. And so one of the things we have to remember when we're looking at all of this is how does this actually help me determine my nutrient balance. And so we have these ranges, but what we have to do is we have to sit back and have to think, okay, what does the tissues of the body actually need as we go through this? And this is where we have to look at this table here. Oh, and those of you who are just listening, go ahead and uh, pop into the, onto the YouTube and you'll see the, the table being presented here where we have distinct things that are going to be used for energetic purposes things that we can store for future use within the tissues, things that will be stored within the tissues that can be used at other places. And then what do we need in order to be able to grow and maintain? Now, one of the things that you'll notice here is that we need the same basic five things in order to grow and maintain. Yeah. We need carbohydrates, we need proteins, we need lipids, we need nucleic acids, and we need phosphates in order to grow and maintain. Mm-hmm. Which means that if I am missing any of those nutrients from my diet, I have to then go back to, okay, where am I storing those things in my body in order to meet my needs for growth and maintenance? 
Right. You have to break this, them down. Yeah. To, in order to break it, because we have to break it down in order to use it to build it up. Because once again, cells are cells are basically nothing more than the analogy of factories. Right. They take the raw material, they're going to break the raw material down and they're going to build something out of that raw material. Right. And this is where it becomes problematic because let's say I want to grow muscle, but I also want to quote unquote lose fat, mm -hmm. which means that I'm going to diet. And once again, diet's a, it's a, it's a four letter word. It's not a four letter word. So diet is basically how am I eating? What is, what is my pattern of consumption of foods? So let's say that I'm changing my pattern of eating foods to limit carbohydrates, mm -hmm. which now means I now have to get those carbohydrates from somewhere else to first meet my energy demands to maintain the metabolic rates taking place within the cells, but also get enough carbohydrates to support growth of the tissues in the bones and in the muscles. Right. And so how am I going to do that? Well, I'm going to start breaking down other things. If I don't change my exercise and my nutrition correctly, I'm not going to get those changes that I need. And that's where you can't cause a, you can't have a reduction in body mass by diet alone, be a healthy way to have a reduction in body mass, because I'm still going to start breaking down tissues in order to just meet my energy needs while trying to also maintain tissues that I'm not going to be able to maintain, which means that we're going to lose from everywhere, not just from the fat mass that I want to lose. I'm also going to lose from muscle. I'm also going to lose from bone. I'm going to lose from from right. connective tissue, I'm going to lose from everywhere. Whereas if I'm going to stress the muscles and stress the bones, I'm going to start to extract carbohydrates from other things. Or I'm going to start making carbohydrates from other things, lipid metabolites, in order to offset the carbohydrates that are, that are missing from the diet. And this right. is where long-term, the excessive restriction of carbohydrates can be detrimental to maintaining tissue growth or to just maintaining tissue. And that's where we get into those issues of malnutrition. And right. malnutrition comes about when I don't have the nutrient balance in order to ensure that tissues are able to maintain themselves. So everyone out there should be more concerned about the nutrient intake they're getting. So what type of food they're eating versus what amount of calories I'm eating. Now, obviously you probably shouldn't be having like 35,000 calories a day. Cause that's well, what the food labels say that that is, cause that sounds excessive, but you should be worried about the nutrition of your actual food itself more so. Correct. And when we talk, when we talk about the nutrition of the food, it's not something where there's, oh, there's good nutrients and bad nutrients. Nutrients are nutrients. Yeah. Uh, just like there's no it's all going to do something, right? Just like there's no such thing as, as good diet and bad diet. Diet's a diet. It's, it's, yeah. it's, how, it's how am I eating? And right. so, and so when we look at that, what we have to do is, is we have to look at diet in terms of balancing. What am I using versus what am I taking in? Right. And so it's more about the nutrients that are there, the carbohydrates, the nucleic acids, the proteins, the lipids, the phosphates, as well as all of the other factors that I need. The other things that I'm going to need in order to maintain the tissues that are there. Mm-hmm. And so what else am I going to need? Well, I'm going to need a whole bunch of vitamins because those right. are going to be a lot of metabolic regulators. I'm going to need a whole bunch of electrolytes, ions, minerals, salts. Right. And then I'm going to need a whole bunch of other things that we usually reference as just cofactors. And so all of these things, either the body has to make them or I have to consume them in my diet. And so right. 
if I cannot make them, I have to consume them. Right. If I can make them, I don't necessarily have to consume them. However, if I'm using more than what I can make, need to consume, then I have to consume. And so right. that's, where we, that's where we get into the, the idea of essentials versus non-essentials. And so when we look at all of these nutrients, we have to look at, okay, is it essential? Do I have to have it in my diet? Or is it non-essential, which means that I can make it, but it's, it's a good thing to have in my diet that's there. Right. Now, Man. the problem is, is that particularly for some of the vitamins, is that if I overconsume those vitamins, I then have to worry about toxicity issues. Yeah. And I've so heard one, about vitamin A specifically having yeah. a, a bit of a bad time, I think, with, what is it, the liver? I don't know, so, something so, like that. So so vitamin A gets stored in the liver. And that's oh, it does? Yeah, okay. so it gets stored in the liver. So uh, cool little story time here in terms of uh, the podcast story time. Uh, the Inuits, the indigenous people in the Arctic, mm-hmm. have a metabolism that is able to metabolize uh, vitamin A Mm-hmm. So that it does not accumulate or cause interference with their normal metabolism. Oh, because they would eat a lot of the uh, Arctic sea life, and Arctic sea life tends to have large livers. Yes, to help them with buoyancy as well as to store materials. And oh. one of the things that gets stored there is is vitamin A, and so wow. vitamin A in excess has neurotoxicity effects. To yeah, it. and so what the Inuits have is they have a small little enzyme that inactivates the vitamin A and allows them to excrete excess amounts of vitamin A. Well, that's cool. You can, you can start to have that same enzymatic change. If you slowly start to introduce right more liver into your diet, because we adapt very quickly. We'll adapt that to that new diet. Now what's, what's interesting is that, one of the one of the vitamins that we know has particularly the B vitamins that mm-hmm. has a protective effect in terms of neural functions. Really? In excess has a neurotoxic effect within the retina. And it's one it's one of the one of the more interesting things that's, that's come out in the last year or so. And by year or so I mean within 2022, 2023. Right. That showed that excessive amounts of niacin even though it is very important in terms of liver metabolism mm-hmm. and in terms of production of neurotransmitters within the, within the brain, particularly right. in the area of the brain is responsible for being able to speak and be able mm-hmm. to under, understand speech. Yes. If I overconsume that niacin in excessive amounts for excessive periods of time actually causes retinopathy, damage to the retina that can lead to blindness. Oh, that's weird. The that's other one. Terrifying. Yeah, I, yeah, it's it, but so it's it's important. But once again, it's like with everything else, we want we don't want to have too much. We don't want to have too little. We want to have just right. Another one that that uh, has um, people tend to overconsume is vitamin C. Really? Yeah, vitamin C. Uh, so long, excessively long story short, got a reputation as being a disease preventer. And by disease preventer, we're talking about communicable disease because right. it, it is used within immune responses. Right, and vitamin C. Have, yeah, vitamin C. And it does have antioxidant effects to it. Yeah. But the problem is, is that if I overconsume vitamin C, is that it can disrupt normal antioxidant functions within cells and actually cause oxidation taking place within cells. Oh. And so, so while having some vitamin C is important, particularly in terms of bone metabolism and in terms of immune function, overconsumption of vitamin C 
can be just as detrimental. Yes. Vitamin so, D, vitamin D and vitamin K are the same. Good. I have a very important question about that because that reminds me. So first of all, I want to ask about all the vitamins. How do you feel about supplements that aren't, you know, found in food? So when you consume an actual supplement, a pill, instead of actually getting your vitamins from your food. And then my second question with the vitamin C supplement thing, whenever I'm sick, I take, um, a little pill type thing. It's not a pill. It's just a vitamin C supplement. It's because it makes my colds go away like twice as fast. At least that's what it's advertised to do. I don't know if that's a placebo, but it always makes me feel better whenever I take it. But is that actually safe? Because I have heard as a cold reliever, you should be taking it if you actually lack vitamin C. I've heard it's not safe to do that, even though I still do that anyway, because I don't want to be sick. No one does. But I want to know if that's actually as bad as I've heard it can be. Okay, so we have we have we have a couple of questions there, and I'm gonna try to take them in order here. Okay. Supplements are called supplements for for a specific reason because they're supplementing. Yes. And so there is no empirical evidence to show taking supplementary vitamins has a beneficial effect if you are not deficient in those vitamins. Oh, so they aren't a replacement. They're not a replacement. And oh, that's, and, that's and that's how most people use them. That's, okay. how most, that, that's how most people use them. But there's right. no empirical evidence to show that that if I have a, if I'm meeting my minimum requirements for my vitamins, mm -hmm. there's no evidence to, to to support the use for the additional vitamins in my diet. Taking, hmm. taking the supplements. And that goes for most supplements that are out there. There's no, okay. there's no evidence to support the use of the supplements outside of me being deficient in those supplements. In fact, most of the uh, evidence for what vitamins do comes about from deficiency in those vitamins. Oh, we, so we, we find out that, oh, this person or this animal model is deficient in this vitamin. This is what we see. And then working backwards through deductive reasoning, we make the hypothesis that it's the vitamin that's causing the, the issue. Right. And then we run the experiment by giving the by giving the organism those vitamins, and this problem goes away. Now mm -hmm. the the issue with that is that we get into two research issues. One research issue that comes about is the Hawthorne effect, mm -hmm. and that is my behavior changes when I know that I'm being observed because I know I'm being observed. So I must change my behavior because I'm being observed. Yes. I understand right. the circular statement that's there. Simply put, if I think that something is going to be a benefit, I'm going to change my behavior to make sure that thing is a benefit. Right. So I think that vitamin C is going to help me not get sick. Mm-hmm. I'm then going to take this, but I'm also going to change my behavior around people who might be sick. Or True. I'm going to, or I'm going to adapt how I interact with people so that I so I decrease the chance of me transmitting a disease or receiving a disease vector, a virus, in the case of most people taking vitamin C, from right. infecting me. Which means that you cannot state that it's because of one thing when it could be because of a whole bunch of other things. 
Isn't that the fallacy of the the last thing is the cause? Yes. Post, okay. post hoc ergo prepare hoc. Okay. Is, is, so is the, is the fallacy there? It goes into one of the issues with making statements about if I'm taking the the vitamin C supplement because I'm trying to prevent me from being sick, mm -hmm. I may also change other things so as to also reduce the chances of me being sick. Right. The problem with that is, is that vitamin C, even though it has effects in terms of being an antioxidant, mm -hmm. can, because of the nature of the chemistry, can start to act as an oxidant. Oh. And the problem with oxidants is that oxidants change cellular metabolism. And by changing cellular metabolism, it can lead to other cellular issues that can come about. No. So the other ones that, that have issues in terms of toxicity are the lipid-soluble vitamins, A, okay. D, A, D, E, and K. Mm -hmm. And that's simply because the other ones, the, the vitamin B group and the vitamin C group, we tend to uh, excrete if we have excessive amounts of it. Oh, okay. It usually gets released either in sweat or in urine. Okay. As the, the lipid soluble ones, the A, D, E, and K will get stored in, in the fat tissues of the body. And then will get released as those fat tissues get metabolized. Okay. E and D also have antioxidant properties to them. Mm -hmm. That means they help control some of the uh, form of reactive oxidative species, helps with inflammation and immune response. D is also, uh, related to calcium metabolism and bone metabolism in terms of um, increasing or decreasing bone mineral density. It's also related to am I absorbing calcium or not absorbing calcium in the intestines from my diet. Mm -hmm. It also is going to uh, cause changes within am I excreting calcium or holding onto calcium in the kidneys when mm -hmm. I form urine. Uh, K is going to be involved with my clotting factors. Oh, and so people who have clotting issues, people who have, who have, who are taking like anticoagulants are typically also put on a limited vitamin K diet hmm. because vitamin K is involved with clot response and activation of the cells responsible for clot response. And so when we start looking at, okay, I'm meeting my nutrient needs. What other things do I have to worry about? all those other things come into play in terms of making sure that I, I meet what other things do the cells need in order to maintain their metabolism without going to one side or the other in terms of everything being just right. And that's where we right. have to worry about the, those, those issues of toxicity taking place, where if I have, once again, if I have too much vitamin C, I can have issues of too much vitamin A, I can have issues for, for at least for the niacin, for the vitamin B, I can have issues now, if someone happens to be pregnant, those mm -hmm. B vitamins become very important oh, as okay. relates to, as relates to, to neurological development as well as oh. bone development. And that's where, uh, pregnant females are usually advised within their prenatal nutrition to increase some of their B vitamins, B12, as relates to making red blood cells and then folic acid. And that's related to uh, central nervous system development and formation of the vertebrae. Okay. 
And so where if, if the pregnant female, if they're deficient in those, in those B vitamins, they can have anemic issues or they could oh. have fetal malformation issues. Spina bifida is one of those issues that can't come about from having to having not enough folic acid or folate. Mm. And so one of the things that has happened within the foods that we consume, and this is where going back, once again, circling back to the uh, supplement, if you get any of the cereals. Yes. Uh, I'm talking about, the, I'm not talking about the, the cereal aisle cereals. I'm talking about oh. cereals in terms of, in, in terms of, uh, materials. And so those are things like wheat, corn. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 Oats, those, those processed things. Mm-hmm. If you look at any of the labels that are cereals or breads, mm-hmm. it all, it's always labeled as fortified. Yes. And so fortified means that we have added to, or we've strengthened. So fortorious is strength. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so for those of you who know the dog fortier, yeah. Fortier simply is stronger. And so fortified right. means that you have strengthened. And the way in which it's strengthened is it's, it's strengthened by added, by adding a lot of the vitamins that would not be consumed without consuming those bread products. So mm. if, I, if I'm not going to consume meats, I'm going to miss out on a lot of the B vitamins because I get a lot of B, my, B vitamins from eating animal meats. Wow. Okay. Which means that if I'm, if I'm a vegetarian, but I'm okay eating breads, even though there's egg and milk in the bread, if I, if I'm going to eat the breads, then I'm still going to get those B vitamins from, right. from, from the, from those, those substances. And so I, so I won't be as deficient in, right. in those vitamins. And so when we talk about the vitamins, we talk about the cofactors and we talk about all of the other things that we need in the diet besides the carbohydrates, the lipids, the proteins, amino acids, and nucleic acids, those factors, all those other things will come about through either adding foods together or by adding the fortified substances to the foods that we consume. Right. And so even though we usually talk about stuff in terms of the calorie in, calorie out, it's really about that nutrient in, nutrient out. And am I getting my minimums? Am I increasing excessively? Am I worried about not getting enough of the cofactors to make sure that metabolism is running correctly. Am I over consuming those cofactors? And that's right. where uh, you always have to go back and you have to look at, okay, based off of my metabolic rate, based off of my age, based off of all of the other demographic factors that come into play in terms of the recommended amounts for the vitamins and the minerals, am I meeting my minimums? Right. And so within that, we also have also have to worry about in terms of the the recommendations. And once again, this is taking us into a different or a, a future podcast for those of you who are listening, or I should say still listening um, to a future podcast in terms of how are those recommendations coming about? How do we actually get to what is the recommended dietary intake that I should have for all of these things? Because we think about it, oh, it's coming from the science, it's coming from the scientists, but yeah. a lot of it is not necessarily coming from the science. So hopefully you got a little bit out of this conversation that we had. And so thanks for listening. Stay tuned for more topics about, or more discussions about the topics here as we continue our discussions on metabolism, as well as other issues related to health physiology. And hopefully we'll be able to dispel a few more myths and misconceptions that are out there that we have as relates to how the human body functions.